Hello and welcome. You've tuned into the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. Later you will be given information how to reach us. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. We're also going to start in the book of Daniel. We're going to do an overview of some of Daniel's prophecies and understand the book of Daniel in light of, especially of end time events. Tonight we're going to do an introduction. Let me read, if I might, in Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 15. Daniel has just had several visions. And as we enter into verse 15, I think that this is a good understanding for us as we introduce the book. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation for at that appointed time, the end shall be. We're going to stop right there. That gives us kind of an idea of what's taken place. Daniel is a man who has many, many visions, has seen so many different things. We're going to see how that relates also to the book of Revelation. As we're looking at the introduction, the book of Daniel, we see that Daniel's life and his ministry really bridge an entire 70 year period while Israel was in Babylonian captivity. During this time, we know that Daniel had been deported with many of the other young men that we see, especially if you read chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, you'll see the young men that were uh, selected for government service. So Daniel was probably about 16, some would say 13. The wording is that he was a man that had been already at a bar mitzvah. So he had been a son of the law. That's why we think that he was somewhere between 13, 16 years of age by the time that he enters government service. Daniel really becomes God's prophetic mouthpiece to the Gentiles and also to the Jews because he is declaring God's eternal purpose, what God's going to do. That's what we're going to be looking at in this book. What is God's purpose? Israel wanted to know because they wanted to know they were in captivity. They wanted to know what was going to happen in the promised land. And that certainly was the promised land. And so they wanted to know. We want to know because we are living in the age of the Gentiles. And so Nine of the 12 chapters in this book revolve around dreams or God-given visions. Sometimes they include trees, they include animals, beasts, images. You may have even read where uh, Belteshazzar, the 
uh, then king at Babylon sees the hand, the fingers, the hand, that part of a hand writing on the wall. In both his personal adventures, Daniel's prophetic visions, Daniel shows God's guidance. If you remember when you open up this book, they began to set aside that we are not going to eat all of the king's portions. We're going to eat just vegetables. We're going to try to keep ourselves pure and clean for the Lord. Because as Jews, they would have eaten kosher diets. Well, they could have eaten all the vegetables and remained kosher. So in all of the personal adventures, and later on, you'll see Daniel thrown into the lion's den. All of these things, Daniel shows God's intervention, his guidance, and that God is in control of all of man's affairs. Not that God is so sovereignly watching over that he, uh, you know, has us as puppets. No, not at all. But he does have control over the affairs of men and kingdoms. So the kingdoms of Daniel's prophecies, we see in chapter 2, chapter 7, a little bit in chapter 8 we're going to talk about tonight. This gives us an overview of some of the, the prophetic meanings that these four kingdoms will that dominate the world's history. They are represented by both an image of four different metals that we see in chapter two, and by the vision of four beasts of chapter seven. Some of that also plays over into chapter eight, as we're going to see. You'll notice, but the head of gold, the silver chest, the bronze, uh, middle section, the legs of iron, and then the feet of iron and clay. That's from Daniel chapter 2. One interpretation about these kingdoms was that it was Babylon, Media, Media Persia, and Greece, that those are the four uh, kingdoms that it, spoke, that it speaks of. I'm going to give you some of the different scholars, and this is one that, that many hold to. However, media never attained the status of a world power. Its independent period was really contemporary with that of Babylon. It was ruled as part of Persia after Babylon's fall in 539 BC. So I think that because in 550 BC, Cyrus who is the king of Persia, he defeats the last Median king, Astagius, and merges the two kingdoms. So now we call it the, the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, that's how Daniel in the book of Daniel treats the Media and Persia Empire as a single empire, and we call it today the Medo-Persian Empire. There is a plausible interpretation, and this is what I hold to. It holds that these kingdoms are Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, and Rome. And I think that we're going to find the factual history and the symbolism of these kingdoms that it's mentioned here. This will fit and we'll have a better understanding of end time events if we recognize those four as being the kingdoms. So the first kingdom is identified as Babylon, the head of gold. We have no doubt about that. 
Nebuchadnezzar is told that he has seen this vision and he was the head of gold. In chapter 7, he is the winged lion. I have some illustrations for that. The lion is recognized as the symbol of the Babylonian royalty. And it's demonstrated in many different pictures, statues, uh, sometimes motifs, various things where lions are found in the Babylonian ruins. We see in chapter 7, it talks about the plucking of wings and the subsequent transformation into a man. And I think that that is absolutely related to Nebuchadnezzar because you know, if you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 4, he begins to say, oh, look at all that I have done. Look at all that I have built. And God, for seven years, makes him like an ox. He's out in the grass or out in the fields eating uh, grass, and he's out of his mind until it says that God restored his right understanding. And so I think that that's what you'll find in chapter 7. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. I would just want to give this to you by way of overview. So the Babylonian head is also represented by the lion in chapter 7 that has the wings. That's representing that this lion is quick. It was able to come in and quickly destroy. This was not the largest of the world empires, but it was the best organized. And then we'll see, and here's another vision uh, where we see the, the winged lion. We're going to look now next at the bear. And I want, to, want us to understand that this bear-like beast, he's raised up on one of his sides, it tells us in chapter 7, verse 5. That really shows how the Persians dominated in the Medo-Persian Empire. And especially after the defeat of Astasagus by uh, Cyrus II. And so the fact that the bear is raised up on one side shows that the Persians really led over the Medes. The ram of Daniel chapter 8 is also described Hi. as having two Let horns, one longer than the other. You with some many, many commentators, you many scholars believe that that school related ministry back to the kings of Persia over the kings Bible of the Medes under Cyrus, who is the son of his son Cambyses. On three kingdoms are chewed up, and they're represented by the three ribs that are in the mouth of the bear. We look forward to so hearing from these you. kingdoms we would love to were send you information. Libya, so thank you. The Chaldean Empire and Egypt, they all were taken over in the second kingdom of the Medo-Persians. So the third beast is a four-winged, four-headed leopard, and it represents the Grecian Empire. Because after Alexander the Great, in 11 years, Alexander destroys or he conquers all of the known world. He goes not only from Greece, but he goes all the way into India and what's today modern-day Pakistan. And we have those records of how they've gone out actually on into Africa and some of the different areas. It's interesting because they were very swift and agile, just as the leopard, and it symbolized the speed 
that Alexander the Great conquered all of the known world. He got to a place where, what was he, 33 years old, said there's no more to be conquered. But very soon after, he does die uh, in a young age. So it's very interesting. The Greeks also began to attribute something because their kingdom was much larger than the Babylonian kingdom. Their kingdom was much larger than the Medo-Persian Empire. So now they try to do something called Hellenization. They bring in and everyone learns to speak Greek. Everyone learns the Greek philosophy. Everyone learns and they hear about the poetry and their gods and all of those sorts of things. And so they are not as well organized as the first two. However, they have a very great impact upon the world as a result. As a result of that, by the way, we have the New Testament written in common Greek because of Hellenization and what Alexander the Great did. And the Jews all read Greek. And so that's why they went to the Septuagint and they translated the Hebrew into the first translation into the Greek. After Alexander's death, the kingdom is divided by his four generals, the four heads of the leopard. The first was Cassander, who was over Greece and Macedonia, and then uh, Lysimachus, who was over Thrace and Asia Minor, Seleucus, who's over Syria and the Middle East, and then finally Ptolemy, who is over Egypt. Now, Seleucus and Ptolemy, they battle back and forth, and the Holy Land really becomes part of their battlegrounds, and so sometimes they're leaning in that area of, of the Holy Land. It's more toward the Seleucus type of government or later the Ptolemies. That is why sometimes as we enter into the New Testament, we see some of the differences after the Romans had come in. And so what are we talking about? Now we are talking about in this area, the four winged beast, who's also that middle section and we're going to see in chapter 8, there is the ram that is the Medo-Persian, but there is a goat that comes in and takes over. Now, this also will have an implication for the man of sin. There was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. We see there the four-headed, four-winged beast, the leopard, symbolizing the Greek empire. We don't want to press on the number four, try to make something else. But the Greek kingdoms after the death of Alexander become very unstable and certain dynasties rise and fall. Understanding this, it has implications then later as the Romans come in because they're trying to overdo what some of the Greek uh, philosophy that had come into the land such as an idea, one of the reasons we don't want to press the number four is because Lysimachus was slain in battle in 281. There is no followers after him. So if we try to make too much of the number four, it falls short. The number four is probably just representative of the several Greek kingdoms that happen in the various times that are in control of the Holy Land because it goes back from the Seleucids to the Ptolemies and back and forth. The final kingdom, 
This is the one I want to spend the most time on. The final kingdom in chapter 7, verse 7, says that it is different from all the former beast. This is the Roman Empire. The two legs of uh, iron of the image of chapter 2 reflect that the empire is characterized in two major parts. One on the east, and Greek is the principal language. One on the west, where Latin is the principal language. However, it's going to have much more impact than that. The ten horns that come from that represent the various rulers and the dynasties who governed the Roman Empire. However, I think we're going to see much more about that. Some scholars, this is what they say, the ten here represents a plurality, should not be pressed for ten specific historical counterparts. I think we're going to see something much greater than just that. Throughout its history, the empire was ruled by a republic, which was made up of several generals who seized power, especially during the late part of the republic, men like Marius, Sulla, Julius Caesar, as opposed to Augustus Caesar, where there's actually a dynasty after Augustus Caesar. He consolidates that power to himself. Well, all of these, by intrigue, assassinations, civil wars, they're all trying to get power to themselves. That is a regular feature in the Roman history. And it seems some scholars would say that that's why the feet that are mixed of clay and of iron. I think I'm going to give you, well, I know I'm going to give you a little different interpretation, but I want you to see that that's the way many Bible scholars are going to tell you. Here we have the example of the uh, image again with Babylon being the head of gold, the breast of silver being Persia, the thighs of brass, that of Greece, the legs of iron, that of Rome, and then we have feet that are mixed with iron and clay, and we're going to find that a rock that was made without hands represents the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and it destroys and knocks down the whole, the whole symbol. It knocks down the whole image. Why is that? I think this is a better explanation for the final kingdom that's coming, that which is different from all the former beast. I believe that it denotes Rome and the Roman Empire. And finally, then, there was in uh, 321, 325, Constantine, the Roman emperor, accepts and brings in Christianity. And now he says that I am the head of the Catholic or the universal church. I am the head of the Christian church. So now you have Christianity and the Roman government being merged. The two iron legs of that image do reflect the Roman and the Greek Catholic Church, in my opinion. The reason for that, it has two major parts. One that was used to be under Constantinople and modern Istanbul, and the other still in Rome, under the Vatican in the West. One still under the Greek influence, one under the Latin influence. The ten toes... The ten toes that were made up in that image that were partly of clay and partly of iron, I believe that they will represent a revival 
of the Holy Roman Empire. That's what Catholicism calls themselves. The Holy Roman Empire is the Roman Catholic Church. But there is a new kingdom that is coming. Another empire that we have yet to see that's on the scene. It's mixed. It's not cohesive. Partly of iron, partly of clay. They kind of work together, but they're really not cohesive in that sense. And there will be 10 kingdoms, 10 nations that will be represented in this coalition empire. It is a world empire, just as the others. Each empire was a little larger than the last and had less organization. I think that this final empire, the empire of the Ten Toes, takes in a worldwide influence, will be a worldwide empire. However, the influence is not cohesive. It will not represent everyone. And so that's what this 10 kingdom or 10 nations are going to represent. The Ten Toe Empire are going to have several dominant leaders. That's, I believe, that's what's represented by the goat horns that are found in Daniel chapter 8. If you read that, you'll see that it is a definite a description of the man of sin. Now, there was a man under the Grecian Empire named Antiochus Epiphanes. And of course, I think we're familiar with Antiochus Epiphanes, how he went in, desecrated the Jewish temple, the temple in Jerusalem. They had all kinds of parties and they desecrated it. He even offered a pig on the altar. And as a result, the Maccabean priests, those those Orthodox Jewish priests led a revival or led a revolt, overthrew Antiochus Epiphanes and his armies, and cleansed the temple. It took them eight days, and they said that during those eight days they had oil enough for a single day, and that's why the Jews remember Hanukkah today, because the oil, they said, miraculously lasted. One day's oil lasted eight days while they cleansed and purified the temple at Jerusalem. That desecration, that abomination of desolation, it's called from Antiochus Epiphanes, is going to be seen again in the man of sin, the Antichrist. There have been many Antichrists, but there will be one in particular. He is the little horn that comes forth, and he is the Antichrist. That's where I said Antiochus Epiphanes was a representative of the Antichrist. We have kind of a foreknowledge. That's why many scholars are going to say, well, that related, that horn, that goat, goes back and represents the Grecian Empire. That is somewhat true, but false, <laughs> because it's going to really represent, we're going to see the fuller meaning of these prophecies under the Antichrist that comes from the ten-toed nation. Then there is a rock that is made without hands that represents the virgin birth. The rock from the mountain, not made with hands, represents Jesus' second coming in what is called the day of the Lord. 
The day of the Lord is certainly coming and certainly going to destroy all of these kingdoms that this world has known. All these man-made kingdoms will be established in one eternal kingdom where Christ is the head. And so all of these, as we've seen, were, are destroyed. All the kingdoms of man will come down because the kingdom of Christ will overthrow everything that has gone before and a new rule and reign takes place. And so this kingdom is the perfect kingdom. Jesus Christ himself is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's going to rule, we understand from the book of Revelation, for a thousand years. During this time, Satan and his demons are bound. Nobody else is going to be able to say, well, the devil made me do it. He is no longer the God of this world. Remember, Christ entered into his domain and took the keys of hell and of death. And so Satan knows. They know eschatology. They know end time events. All of the demons understand that. Remember, when Christ came, some of the demons have asked him, is it now before the time that you're, throwing, you're going to bind us? Well, they have a good idea of eschatological events, but God, Satan is no longer the small g God of this world. Christians, thank the Lord, we have a new glorified body. We've been made perfect. We have been made like Christ at this time. And we begin to come back with Christ and rule and reign with him. And of course, where you work will be determined upon your faithfulness. And what have you done with what God has given you now? Have you been faithful in the small things? He'll make you ruler and give you greater things in that day. After the battle of Armageddon, after that final battle, one-fourth of mankind, after that whole seven-year tribulation, only a fourth of the world's population remains. Three-fourths of the world's population dies, either at the battle or in the seals and trumpets and all that's going to be coming upon this world. What happens to those that quarter of the population? They're in their natural bodies, and they'll have a lifespan, Isaiah tells us, of about 100 years. In that period, they have the opportunity to either accept or reject Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Now, today we have the revealed Word of God, and we have much. And just as in the Old Testament, they had certain knowledge of God, but we have much more. In this new millennial kingdom, they'll have even greater understanding. And yet many people still will not accept Christ. Even with a fuller and a greater understanding, they still will not receive him as, that, as their savior. So at the end of the thousand year period, in Revelation it talks about this, Satan and his demons are released from the pit. And what happens he is able to deceive a huge population, and he leads a rebellion. It's called the Battle of Gog and Magog. And although they assemble a great army, there is no battle that takes place. There is no war. Why? 
because the very breath of God comes and destroys them. And what happens at that point? Then we have the final judgment. This is where the great white throne judgment takes place. And all of those will stand and be judged. Following this, we go into the eternal heaven age. You can read all about this from Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22. It lays it out. It's very clear and succinct in explaining how all of these things come about. Next week, God willing, we're going to get into Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. We're going to be talking about that and looking at it in three sections. Daniel's 70 weeks are divided into three different periods. We're going to try to understand that. We're going to go from Daniel chapter 9. We'll break these down so that you can understand what has already passed and what is future. And that way you have the understanding of the book of Daniel that is necessary to help you today to live for Jesus Christ. And that's really what my point is in all of this. My point is that in looking at all of these different things, and we've just talked about the general overlay aspect, and I hope that you are familiar with many of these. I hope that this is nothing new, that you're well acquainted with. But I want you to recognize that some of Daniel's prophecy still is in the future and is very much applicable to our day and age. And I want you ready to live for Jesus Christ today. And if the Lord comes, wonderful, great. But if we tarry and if we see difficult days, I want you to stand firm in your relationship with Christ. I do not want you to waver or compromise or give in in any sense. That you know the truth and you can stand upon the truth so that you are prepared, whatever may come. And I'm not saying that we're going to have you know, terrible times or anything, but already in our world, our world's a mess. I want you to know God is in control. And as things get worse, as things de-escalate, we understand that God is watching over and he still loves you. And you shall not, should not ever stand back or compromise. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions on this or other topics, please see our contact information in the description or email us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.